All right, great song service as we've become used to. Um, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and in a moment we will begin in verse 24. This morning, I will uh, bring a sermon on a subject that I have not preached here before. Um, I think, I mean, surely we've mentioned it in passing, and you're not going to be surprised by or find unfamiliar the biblical truths set forth today, but I have, as far as I can tell, never dedicated a whole sermon to it here. Um, I, I feel this may be one of the more important sermons that I've prepared um, as it relates to a Christian worldview. Today I want to provide for you a biblical response to an important issue that we've seen play out vividly in blood and smoke in the streets of our country. It's a it's a flashpoint for controversy, and it's one of the most polarizing problems in society. And it's the subject of racism. It's, it's not a subject that can be rightly addressed without context. As a matter of fact, I had intended, when I began working on this sermon, to preach um, this in one Sunday, um, but as I began to prepare, uh, by way of introduction, a presentation of the context of racism, I realized pretty soon um, this wasn't going to be one sermon, it's going to be two, at least. So, um, we'll be in this subject again next week, um, and... Uh, and we'll actually see a lot more scriptures in next week's sermon as we're going to spend a lot of time laying down the context um, for this biblical um, truth and for the problem of racism. The importance of context I don't think can be understated. As a matter of fact, part of the reason why opposing political sides seem to talk past each other so much on the issue is their inability or unwillingness to see the context of the other of the other's position and there there's a reason why I've never preached an entire sermon in this church on the subject quite frankly our church has never struggled with the sin of racism and I want to make that clear, lest you think, what, does Pastor Josh think I'm a racist? <laughs> I've never noticed in our congregation um, a slighting, either consciously or even subconsciously, of other attenders for their race. 
I can't say I've never heard racist comments in this room, but they're very quickly shut down and people clearly informed that that kind of a viewpoint is not welcome within the family of God. And it was a guest. <laughs> An anti-Semitic guest. Um, anyway, so I'm not preaching this sermon this morning to address a specific danger in our church. I think racism is something against which we should always be on guard. But I don't expect to have to step up to a brother or a sister in this room and rebuke them for it ever. Um, the reason I decided to preach on this topic is the ever-increasing noise in society on the topic. And that said, surveys show that actual racism is tolerated or embraced by less people in our country than ever before. That's a good thing, right? For instance, the membership of that historically wicked white supremacist organization, the KKK, is at a nearly all-time low. Now, if you watch the news, you might not know that, right? Remember this. Always, always remember this. The media makes its money on viewership, all right? And political parties wield their greatest power when the masses react in fear. So both will inflame and exaggerate the situation and hope to foment more violence and hate. So, why have I chosen to cover this subject and give a biblical response to it? And the reason is that it has become a major conversation point for those who do watch the news. And the character of that conversation is almost always unhealthy and misleading. Christians true, authentic followers of Christ are being forced to distance themselves from people with whom they've never had any relationship or affinity. And when Christians refuse to disassociate from those with whom they've never had any association, they're characterized with the same hateful rhetoric as those they have never known and whose hate they cannot even comprehend. And I bring this message today so that you might be equipped to answer any charges that are unfairly levied against you or respond to the subject when it comes up. The truth is, the church must speak with one voice. And it should not be in a defensive or an antagonistic tone. If we spend all of our time trying to defend ourselves against accusations of racism, we're just falling into the trap 
Our voice must be strong and unequivocal. It must be loving and uncompromising in its truth. And what I mean to to provide for you this morning is the beginning of a set of equipment so that you might clearly speak God's truth on this issue. It is not so that you might better defend yourself. Just don't allow the accusation to even have an effect on you. Just speak God's truth on the issue. By way of introduction, I want to go over some context. So I think doing so is going to make the truths of Scripture stick in our minds and serve us more practically so that we might be able to apply them, uh, these truths from Scripture, more effectively. Let me start with my personal context. At least then you'll know my heart and the position from whence I come on this issue. This is my personal context. I was raised with no concept of racial bias. Um, I learned from Scripture that we were all created equal. I learned from the Bible how the people of different cultures developed differently. I knew knew that there were bigots in the world, but I was pretty naive about how entrenched some of that bigotry was. (laughs) When I went to college... In the Deep South, I was given a choice as to which ministries uh, in which I would work. Well, I chose the least familiar of the fields out of curiosity more than anything. I chose to work in the black community. For four years, I immersed myself in black southern culture. And I loved it. I was, it, it, was, it was fully, I loved the ministry. It was fully foreign to me. But to me, people are people no matter what color they are, and I loved them. Like I, like I love anyone to whom God calls me to minister. I still have relationships with some of those that God used me to bring to Christ. I learned to talk like them, sing like them, be comfortable in their homes. I was the greatest compliment that I ever received was to be told by a young black kid, Brother Josh, you're the blackest white boy I ever did see. <laughs> and I could not tell you the great feeling that I had from that. I felt like I had identified with them, and quite frankly, it was by accident. I was just so immersed in working amongst them that I was determined just 
subconsciously not to be so different from them that I couldn't reach them. And I just found myself talking like them while I was with them and singing with them in the same way, in the same meter. And I, I, I loved it. I loved that aspect of that ministry especially. I remember the first time I was called a cracker. <laughs> and the first time that I was assumed to think less of my black brothers and sisters than my white ones. And my reaction was the same as when I first met a professing white Christian who expressed racist views. I was confused. I was horrified. I was angry. And I was disgusted. The timing of my uh, ministry in Florida was just post-Rodney King, for those who remember that incident. Tensions were high in the black community, and my life was threatened more than once. But to make a long story short, love overcame those tensions. Now, that's enough about myself. I just want you to know where I'm coming from on this. It's actually personal. And the crisis of racial bigotry also has an American context that just cannot be ignored. And if we understand that American context, it's going to lend strength to our position to know about it. So I want to spend a little bit of time before we read our text. I know it's been like 15 minutes and we haven't read the Bible yet. But don't worry, we're going to get plenty of Bible out of this series. We need to lay down the context. If I skip this next section, what we end up with is an insensitive and unloving um, proclamation of truth that distances us from the reality of the situation. and, And we don't want to do that. We need to know the historical American context. The American colonies were peopled by immigrants from many countries. And while the primary motive of the first pilgrims was to escape religious persecution, the American continent was quickly recognized to be laden with great financial opportunity. Nation states financed the capture of slaves by the shipload and created a constant pipeline of humans to work the land in America. America became the cash cow of Europe and white people on both continents got very rich on the backs of black slaves. You could point out that nations and empires have throughout history almost always been built in this fashion. But it would sound like the lame excuse that it is for the horrific national sin of slavery. However, America had the powerful influence of Scripture in its leadership. 
And they were appalled and ashamed at the concept of slavery. Even though it characterized the very existence of the territory in which they lived, and for many of them, their own financial achievements. You can't deny the hypocrisy of their position on this, and neither did they. Many of our founding fathers who owned slaves wrote powerfully against slavery. And some of them, even in personal letters, admitted someday they would stand before God and be judged for that sin. That was Thomas Jefferson, actually. They designed, in their own formation of a nation, along with their separation and independence from the nation-states that had colonized this land, they determined that America would be different. It was an arduous battle among the representatives of the colonies. What language would be used to express the principles of our founding? And the end product did show some compromise. However, the Declaration of Independence, our founding document, did retain the clause that was hardest fought for, that all men are created equal. It was a seed that was sown in the heart of a nation. And less than a hundred years later, there bloomed from that seed enough courage and willpower to do what had never been done before. One half of the nation rose up against the other half with the primary motivation of setting the slaves upon which their nation was built free from their slave owners. It was the bloodiest war in American history by far and had more casualties than all other wars in which our nation has been involved combined. It was a huge step in the right direction. But very few people in America, even those who fought for the Union, very few people saw living side by side as equals in the same country as even a possibility. Many planned, and, and it is written by many of, our, uh, of, of the leaders in the North, they planned to give the free slaves, the, the, the freed slaves once they had won the war, their own territory so that they might form an equal neighboring nation next to a white nation. You know, we look back on that and we just shake our heads. Ugh. Nice try, but you have missed the mark by far. <laughs> Time would tell that this was not the right path to take. The next hundred years was fraught with cultural growing pains. Integration of the races had every obstacle imaginable. 
political parties warred against each other. One demanded that all the races be given the freedom to vote and hold a place of equality in society. The other reacted violently to that. But Lincoln's party prevailed. Not without resistance. There continued friction, and even as things slowly got better, there was and is an ongoing effort to foment friction between the races. Quite frankly, it's how some people stay in power. We can only imagine how the healing process would be expedited without the constant effort to sow division amongst the races. But it is more than a manufactured thing. Real bigotry still exists. Some of it is what has been referred to as the soft bigotry of low expectations. Some of it is the hard bigotry of the violent haters of people of different races. Both types of bigotry are designed to keep people of another race from realizing their aspirations. And both result in racial inequality. Now I want to give one more aspect of the context of this issue before we open the Bible. I know you've got it open already. You're like, just read it already. But we need to at least nod at the recent American context. I've been really careful in writing this and in reading this to make sure I read just what I wrote (laughs) so that I don't make a political comment. The place for that isn't behind this pulpit, right? But recently a group of those bigoted haters showed up for a march of displayed hatred in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they were met by counter-protesters. And the violence that has ensued has been plastered across the newspapers and cheered. That's not an accidental use of that word. In the news as a harbinger of a coming storm. Tensions are high and accusations are flying. And it is in this context that I bring this sermon this morning. As a Christian... You should know how to respond to the conversation. Let me tell you what's not okay. Is Christians saying, that is an uncomfortable conversation full of conflict, and I'm going to back away from it. We don't have that option. God is clear in his words, so we must be clear in our words. We must engage. You say, oh, but I'm going to be accused of... Forget that. Let the truth speak for itself. Make God's position clear. So let's read our text. We're in Acts chapter 17. 
This text is right in the middle of the Apostle Paul's sermon on Mars Hill to the men of Athens, in which he uses one of their altars as a kind of a starting point for the conversation. So let's start in verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped by men's hands as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of earth, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for making your position on this issue so clear. God, we just pray that not only that you would help us to submit entirely to your truth, but also give us the courage and the love to step forward and speak your truth to the world so that people might know where you stand on this issue. God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet been born into your family, we just pray that they would recognize today the great equalizer, the cross of Christ, and receive Jesus as their Savior today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 30 minutes of introduction uh, leaves us 15 minutes left for a sermon. But the sermon series really only has three points um, from this text. And we're only going to cover one of them today. So this passage, as I said, is in the context of Paul's sermon on the unknown God. And it gives us first God's own characteristics. God is shown here as the one who made the world. Who alone is Lord of heaven and earth. Do you see that right there in verse 24? God that made the world and all things therein. He cannot be contained by temples made by man, no matter how great those temples may be. You see that there, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. This reminds us of the authority that he wields over us. And the right that he alone has regarding his own creation. 
He's not dependent upon the worship of man. You see that right there in verse 25. He says, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needeth anything. What that means, although certainly men's hands are meant to worship God, he's not defined by that. Whether we worship him or not, he's still the same God. He does not receive strength from our worship. He does not receive affirmation from our worship. He doesn't gain authority from our recognition of his rightful place. He is God. He's the creator of all men. If we served a God that got stronger as we worshipped him, then perhaps we could pick our own biases. Right? We could pick our own rules and set our own standards for how much of his desires we're going to follow in life. But it's not that way. He doesn't need our worship. He rightfully holds his position of authority because he's the creator. He's not defined by who we declare him to be. We see in verse 25 that he is the one who gives life to mankind. And allows each breath. It says, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Again, we remember that he's the one with the right to make rules regarding our interaction with each other. We also see that he is here describing his own process of making mankind. It's in the next verse, verse 26, that we see the statement upon which I'll build the sermon this morning. Look first to whom he is speaking about in this verse. In verse 26 it says, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. He's speaking about all nations, all types of people, living in every area of the earth, throughout all the earth. There is, in that phraseology, no race excluded, and none are shown here as superior or inferior. And what we learn here is that they were all made by the one true God. They were all made by the one true God. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. The fact that we are all products of the perfect imagination of one God is in and of itself an equalizing truth. We were made by design. The rise of evolutionary falsehood is largely responsible 
for the modern philosophical basis from which racism has been historically defended. Darwin wrote a book that is highly revered by many creation deniers. I like that. I like the. I like that term. Just came up with that off the top of my head. Turns out now, if you deny something, then uh, it's a bad thing. So um, we'll just start calling them creation deniers. <laughs> Sorry. Darwin wrote a book that's highly revered among many creation deniers in the scientific community. But that book is rarely given with its whole title. Do you know the whole title of Darwin's famous book? Let me give you that title in its entirety. On the Origin of Species, by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. (laughs) They don't even print that on the front cover anymore. On this fatally flawed theory of evolution, there have been founded several horrific historical atrocities. One man drew the natural conclusion that the races must clash and the stronger race must survive. And in Hitler's mind, this was the Aryan race. And he was determined to prove it to be so. The theory of evolution accomplishes one great terrible thing. It denies the existence of one to whom we are all equally accountable. In doing so, it gives rise to the worst impulses of our sinful nature and pulls away the inhibitions and the natural reserve that would cause us to reject such a horrendous idea that one race is superior to another. It sears the conscious the conscience of man so that it might not flinch in the presence of bigotry. For who, after all, will judge us but ourselves? The denial of one creator has served to foment racism and bigotry in the world more than any other blighted theory that ever smashed into the realm of science. Even the late evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould noted, Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following acceptance of evolutionary theory. Understand, evolution isn't responsible for racism, but it has provided the most fertile ground for it to grow and flourish. However, some Christians who acknowledge creation have in the past compromised their position from scriptural principles. Turns out, if you're going to hold an unscriptural position, 
You have to try to convince yourself and those around you that something in here doesn't mean what it actually looks like it means. Something in here doesn't say what it actually looks like it says. And so they have added to the account of creation in Scripture. And some have claimed that God created races separately. That the creation account was more of a figurative thing. And God created white races and darker races. And he created them separately. Intending some to be superior to others. Can I tell you something? Don't mess with the literal six-day creation account that is so clearly purported in Genesis. Because stepping away from Scripture has terrible consequences. This argument that we are all made by the one true God is one that the prophet Malachi used to preach against unequal treatment of people. In Malachi 2 and verse 10 it says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Treachery against fellow humans is profane against our agreement with God because he's the one that created all of us equal. When you're faced with the opportunity and the obligation to speak on the subject of racial equality, start with the primary building block of that structure. The foundation of racial equality. That's the creation of all men by the one true God of the Bible. Don't slip into defensive mode. Unless you are or have been a racist yourself, you have nothing to defend. Let the truth speak for itself. Be loving in your delivery. The world must know that there is a philosophy. There is a philosophical basis in which we live that renders racial bigotry untenable. And that philosophical basis is not the evolutionary process. That renders Racial bigotry, almost a necessity. The philosophical basis that renders racial bigotry untenable begins with the concept of one true God who created all of us. We could never be racist because we know that someday... We're going to stand before the God that made all of us and give account for how we treated fellow and equal people. Back to the context of our primary text this morning in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the 
Athenian men on Mars Hill. And he says, you have got altars all over the place. But let me introduce you to the one true God. And in in his introduction to the one true God, because this wasn't a dissertation on, uh, on racial equality that Paul was giving. It is just the necessary doctrine that follows that philosophical basis that embraces one true creator God that we are created equal. And that someday we're going to give account to the one that created all of us. And if I think about that, that someday I'm going to stand before the God who made the person that I might in my worst sinful nature disparage. I might change how I think about that person. After all, the same God made him as me. And I don't want to stand before God and answer for treating him in a way that our creator God would disapprove. We could never be racist because we know that someday we would stand before God and give account for how we treated fellow and equal people. It would profane the very basis of all that we believe to do so. It is incompatible with Christianity and it's incompatible with the belief in the God of the Bible. Next week we're going to learn where the races come from, how they developed. The unscientific theory of evolution has served to foment racism in its flawed understanding of the development of superior and lesser races, to use Darwin's own terms. That sort of language is antithetical to the creationist. Let us firmly plant ourselves in the truth and be clear as to the basis for our argument. If you see the horror of the news reports and you wonder how could man fall to such a level as this well you are not alone the fact that you were created by God is why you recognize such injustice and it's why you recoil at this hatred God created man in his image the Bible says Stamping upon Adam the semblance of himself. That is a sense of righteousness. Even in the fall of man, there is still a conscience that has survived. We recognize that conscience is a delicate and frail thing indeed. And it can be seared and it can be rendered inert. Entire cultures have done this. But you know it is wrong. And you know that in a perfect world, men and women of all colors and cultures would treat each other with respect and honor. Beloved, that's the intention of the one true God who created us. As his children... We must exemplify this in our church and we must preach it to the world. It is a higher standard and we rejoice in being held to it for it glorifies the creator.
perhaps you've not been born into this family of God. I, I speak of the spiritual transformation that takes place when you come to the realization that you are equally fallen, sinful and unworthy of heaven. I mean that moment when you realize that Jesus has made a way for all people to come to God. And that way is through Jesus. If you have not come to God through Jesus Christ, I would love to introduce you to him. As we say, the ground is level at the cross. There is no sinner that needs more of his blood. There is no culture or race excluded there. There was one creator, and there is one savior. Every race, every culture, every color, every man, every woman and every child comes to the Father by the same provided means, the person of Jesus Christ. John 14:6, Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in which I would challenge you, if you haven't come to know Jesus as your Savior, you can make that decision today. If as a child of God, if as a child of God you say, you know what, I have backed away from engaging in this conversation. I've given you your first biblical tool to re-engage. Step forward. Proclaim this foundational truth. We have one creator. One creator made all people. And he made all people equal. And, And that foundational truth... Of the creator God. Puts you in a strong position. To give the rest of the argument. Which I'll give you that next week. (laughs) But it also puts you in a powerful position. To present the gospel. Because there is one thing we all have in common. While we have one creator in common. We have all fallen. And we all need the same Savior. And that's a great segue into the gospel. Stand with me and make the commitment God would have you to make as we surrender all to him. On this first stanza, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily.
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father.